Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. This show was previously recorded. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Midday Super Talk Mississippi in the Element Well Studios on this hump day. Joining us now in the studios, Aaron Rice. He is the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute, former Lance Corporal of the United States Marine Corps. Aaron, always good to see you. Yeah, George, thanks for having me. So we got uh, want to have you on because we got Memorial Day coming up, as it always does, uh, as either the last or next to last uh, Monday of May. I'm not sure exactly yeah, what day. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's May 30th this year. Yeah, yeah, May 30th is coming Monday. So for the benefit of our audience, please explain the difference between the distinction between Veterans Day and Memorial yeah, Day. Yeah, no, great, great. I'm um, glad you asked. Uh, so yeah, Veterans Day obviously is for any veteran who served, um, and and so that's you know your veterans who are alive today that are walking around, and you tell them you know thank you for your service. Uh, Memorial Day is meant to honor and remember those veterans who did not make it home, so made the ultimate sacrifice and died overseas, you know, in protection and service to our country. Now I'll say. I I mean, some people seem to, you know, get kind of you see memes on Facebook or wherever that say, oh, don't don't thank people for their service. It's terrible. I don't, I don't know any veterans that get upset if somebody thinks if somebody thanks me for my service on Memorial Day, which happens all the time. I'm sure. not upset by it. And, sure. and I'm not going around scolding people by it. But I do think it's great to to, you know, kind of help people understand uh, the difference in those days. Yeah, because sometimes they, they do get interchanged or, or yeah. conflated. But uh, yeah, we we really I don't know any veterans that ever get upset if no. you if you thank them for their service because it just happens to be at or around Memorial Day, yes. which is for the purpose of recognizing it those, is. as you said, who and paid it, the ultimate sacrifice. It is, and people have good intentions by it, and I don't take any offense to it. I mean, another related issue is that you'll see, you know, a lot of things on Facebook that say like, you know, in case you thought it was National Barbecue Day, and we'll show somebody, you know, weeping at a graveside and all that. And look, don't get me wrong. I mean, Memorial Day. I mean, I, I personally, it is very important to me, and I have been with the families of my friends who lost their lives overseas, and I've been with their wives and their children and their parents, and I've seen, you know, the gaping hole that they left behind and just how important that day is. And so it is very important to me, and I, I do take a moment on the day to think about those friends of mine and everybody who who paid the ultimate sacrifice. But nevertheless, again, going back to what I was saying, usually when I see people sharing that, I mean, it's honestly usually civilians who who – are not veterans who are saying that. I think your average veteran, and again, there may be some veterans, I can't speak for all, there may be some veterans who get upset by kind of the commercialization of Memorial Day, you know, oh, here's a sale, or happy Memorial Day, and barbecuing and all that. But I would just venture to say, uh, again, that, that I think most veterans, 
you know, don't expect people to sit around and, and mourn all day and, and cry all day or anything. I mean, I, I do think it's great to have that day to, you know, and, and I think veterans, for the most part, are going to be the ones that, that are doing a lot of the remembering because we knew the guys that didn't make it back. That's but, right. But for all of us to just have the day, maybe take a moment to, to pause and think about it, and then also, yes, enjoy the day. That's great. That started in 1868, yeah. originally um, termed as Decoration Day. Yeah, decorating the graves of this. And that, that goes exactly to my point, was that the original intent was for veterans to go to the cemeteries and right. decorate the graves. And that's why I was put in May is because flowers would be in bloom and yeah. so you could decorate the graves. But again, that illustrates my point. I think it was, you know, it's going to, just like veterans fought the wars, and especially today, you know, we kind of have a separation between civilians who don't bear the brunt of that. I mean, we've got less than 1%, you know, will be involved in these these foreign wars today. I mean, I think veterans are used to that concept that we're going to be the ones that are probably doing most of the, you know, honoring or or decorating graves or visiting the graves or there are family members and all that but i do think it's good to have the day for the broader population and i think look in my in my experience mississippians very much want to honor the day and and think about it and yeah. like i said anything that go that might be a little bit incorrect if you want to say that is usually from a place of goodwill it's yeah. like you said someone saying happy veteran i mean happy memorial day and you know or uh thank you for your service yeah. you know and those are all fine that's perfectly fine yeah that's been my experience as well so we should point out that it became an official holiday a hundred years after the first one was celebrated yeah. in 1968. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. That is interesting. It became an official holiday at uh, that time, and it's one of the few days that the flags are ordered at half staff yeah. on yeah. Memorial yeah. Day. So you served in the United States uh, Marine Corps, yep. uh, achieved the, the rank of Lance Corporal, and uh, where were you over there? Uh, well, I went to Haditha, Iraq, and this was in 2005. Uh, which it was just a, you know, that's an Alambar province of Iraq. And if people can remember back to 2005, they probably remember that Alambar was just the wild west of Iraq. Yep. Not yep. a good place to be, especially in that time frame. And so it wound up being, an, nobody foresaw this, but it wound up being the case that our battalion was the hardest hit Marine battalion in the, in the entire Iraq war. I mean, it was just uh, very heavy losses. I was one of the first casualties. Actually, I was the first casualty in our battalion. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, um, but also, you know, lost a lot of friends after I was injured. And so, um, you know, it's, it was just, you know, it was very hard on our, our entire battalion, the family members of our battalion, uh, me personally, you know, losing those friends. And so, you know, very tough thing. But again, that's why it's so important to me. And, and I know it is to you and to a lot of people in Mississippi to take the day to, you know, the moment to remember that and think about that and honor that. Yeah, absolutely. So you lost part of your leg. Yeah, that's right. There. That's right. I did. So, um, yeah, that's what I was alluding to when I said I was the first casualty. So I, I kind of forget sometimes that uh, that people may not know. But, yeah, I was I was in Iraq and, and driving a Humvee and, and hit an anti-tank landmine. And so that uh, destroyed my Humvee, and I lost my left leg uh, below the knee. Thankfully, nobody else in my Humvee was injured, which is one of the things that I'm, you know, was very grateful for. Um, but you know, nevertheless, I mean, despite that, I mean, I, I recovered very uh, well. Was you know, came back to Walter Reed Army Medical Center uh, and Bethesda National Naval Medical Center. Got excellent care, prosthetic rehabilitation, 
did fine. Ran a 10-mile race two months after I got a prosthetic leg. And, you know, so for me, I mean, serving with the guys that I got to serve with was just the absolute honor of my life. And, you know, losing a leg is not is not something that, that takes anything away from that. And and really, like I said, the, the only hard part of it was losing friends, not yeah. being injured. Well, uh, thank you for your service Appreciate and your that. sacrifice, thank of course. You. Uh, so... Do you come from a military family, Aaron? What yeah. inspired you? Did you join right out of high school? Yeah, I, I did. So September 11th happened my senior year of high school, and so that was kind of the genesis of this. Now, my my grandfather was a Marine, served on Iwo Jima. The military was kind of something I'd always considered in okay. high school, but by the time that all happened, I decided I was going to go to state, you know, Mississippi State, uh, and do college and be a lawyer or something like that. And so then 9/11 happened, and that really changed everything for me. So you know, you got to remember back then that people my age had never seen war, did not understand really the context of what had just happened. But I was, you know, even at that young age, really enjoyed history. And, and I really did understand the significance of it immediately. And I decided I'm joining up because we're about to go to war. And I, I can actually remember being at football practice that day on 9-11 and, and one of my friends saying, you know, what do y'all think is going to happen now? And I spoke up and said, well, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. I mean, we just got attacked on U.S. soil. We're going to war. And literally everybody in the area with me scoffed and laughed at that because we had no concept at that age. I mean, young people today are just used to seeing America constantly at war. Yeah. But for us at that age, nobody really had a concept. They thought of war as something that was in the history books that you read about, but not something that could personally happen to you or affect you. So anyway, um, but yeah, I, I did understand that. And so I, I started the process then of joining the Marine Corps so that I could deploy in defense of our country because I knew that our country was under attack. And so it took you know a good while to get into the Marine Corps, you know, uh, and then ultimately wound up being deployed in 2005 to Iraq. Yeah, that's a good point that it, it, at that time, really, you'd have to look back to Vietnam. Exactly. Which As, we were not alive for, my, my right, age group. Yeah. Right. Uh, my era growing yeah. up, uh, my, my brother served in uh, Strategic Air Command yeah. during Viet, Vietnam. But, uh, but since then, as you indicate, it's been relatively constant. Yes, it has been. And it's, it's been interesting to me kind of watching the younger generation under me come up because their experience is so much different than ours. And that's I, I want to say that's one thing that I do think is important here. This is the first Memorial Day that we're celebrating in peacetime yeah. for 20 years. And I really do think, I mean, talking to some of these younger kids, too, I mean, it, there are, you can almost grow numb to the to the losses that we've suffered. I know there was war fatigue for a long time back in '05 when I served. People were just checking out of it and done with it. And so I think this is a great year to really say, you know, look, the wars are over, and it's time for us to really recommit ourselves to this. Don't be numb to it. Um, yes, we've been at war for 20 years. We are going to honor the guys that didn't make it back and think yeah. about that. Yeah, it's so it's important. Uh, we got a break here. You want to hang around? Yeah, we'll sure. Keep talking, see yeah. what else is going on. We've got Aaron Rice uh, in the Element Well Studios with us. We'll be right back.
This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. We are in the Element Well Studios, middays. John in Hardeman, Tennessee. Aaron wants to say thank you, sir, for being a great American and a Marine. Well, so thank you. I appreciate that. Appreciate that, uh, John. So, and that, and that kind of leads me to a question, Aaron. Um, since 9-11, which, look, looking back, I, I can't remember another time in my lifetime even, where the country really did seem to rally around a common cause. Absolutely. As we did after 9-11. Patriotism was off the chart, and it seems like we were able to at least put our political differences on the shelf for a while. Absolutely. Uh, That doesn't seem to be the case today, but my question to you as, as a veteran is, has the attitude towards veterans changed uh, over the, the decades here, yeah. since you've served up to now. Has uh, that changed him? Uh, well, I mean, I think it, it absolutely changed from Vietnam to my era. You no know, obviously, Vietnam vets came home and got spit on and yeah. all kind of terrible things. And yeah. I just want to say, if you're a Vietnam veteran out there, thank you yes. for your service. I absolutely. mean, you guys, I came home to parades and tons of gratitude from across the political spectrum and honestly i felt like unwarranted gratitude most of the time because i felt like i really had not done that you know that much and then had just you know kind of gone to gone to serve and do what i signed up to do and happened to get hurt and was really okay other than that uh but just absolutely incredible overwhelming gratitude everywhere i turned and Vietnam veterans didn't have that at all. I mean, it was just despicable. And so, again, if you're a Vietnam veteran, thank you for your service. You should have been told that a lot more when you came back. Um, but absolutely, it changed from Vietnam to then. Um, you know, I'd say my entire experience as a veteran has always been overwhelming gratitude. Of course, yeah. back in 05 when the wars were at their height, I'd say, you know, maybe more. I mean, you know, a little bit more. But I'd say that's just more because that was it was in the news. Yeah. And we're still experiencing the, the effects every day. We had flag-draped coffins coming home every day and all of that. But I've always been – you said it, 9-11 – um, I think, you know, obviously a lot changed. I mean, we came together, we rallied around the flag, and that has gone away. You're right. But one thing that did not go away is, for me, that entire intervening 20 years, people, I don't care if they're where they are on the political spectrum, you know, left, right, center, independent, what they are, um, people have always been, uh, you know, very respectful to me and to other veterans and, you know, thank Thank us for our service. Again, maybe I feel like too much sometimes, but but uh, for me at least. And, you know, but whether they agreed with the war or not, again, Iraq was a very controversial war. Yeah. I mean, um, even Afghanistan became a very controversial war over time. And so I think I've told you this before. I mean, when it was amazing because when we were in Iraq, we didn't care about the politics of it one bit. The military, the guys that I served with, did not care about the politics. And it was being fought about and discussed at home every single day. But we were just there doing our job and did not care about that. 
But even when we would come back and talk to people who had been involved in those fights and and the politics of it and had strong feelings about it, and a lot of the people I spoke with were probably opposed to the war in Iraq. Yeah. Everybody set that aside when they talked to me, and they could distinguish between you know perhaps opposing the war in Iraq and speaking with me, a veteran who served in that war, and having you know respecting what I did and and the sacrifice that I made and other people that I knew had made. Yeah, it. Uh, I, I guess it's just kind of been an ebb and flow mm-hmm. in, in our history, and and certainly uh, World War Two, World War One, World War Two, Korean War. Yeah. Uh, different time periods, but it was really Vietnam because it was uh, kind of a politician's war to yeah. a great extent, and there was no clear objective, yeah. and we really didn't come out with a, a win. You Absolutely. couldn't, really, couldn't yeah. really put a mark on it and say, yeah, we won that one and something changed. In fact, just the opposite happened. Yeah. We we left in a vacuum form, kind of like what happened in Afghanistan. Yeah. And uh, North Vietnam and, and uh, the communists took over and yeah, and again, South Vietnam. And like you're saying, I mean, it was also opposed, you know, very heavily here on uh, in the U.S. Kind of, you know, more so than than the Iraq War I was just yeah. discussing. And so, but you know, if you had a if you had an unpopular war, you could at least maybe console yourself or console, uh, you know, service members could console themselves, find consolation in the fact that we won and we changed something, we prevented something really bad from happening. And just like you said, so not only was it unpopular at home, but then the objective really wasn't achieved yeah. either. And we had a botched withdrawal, like you said, like we had yep. in Afghanistan, which was one of the things as a veteran that was so frustrating to me about Afghanistan is that we had seen this story play out. Exactly. I mean, we knew what could happen if we did it that way. Yeah. And, and, you know, we absolutely should have been able to handle that differently so that we did not have scenes that looked like Saigon coming out of Afghanistan and going into the history books and kind of putting a black mark on the service of all of our Afghanistan veterans and the U.S. in general and all of that. So that was very frustrating. But, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, for the Vietnam vets, it was just a totally different experience. I, I was actually in uh, – went to visit my brother who was stationed at um, uh, Beale Air Force Base yeah. in, in Marysville, California, and flew through San Francisco for that. And remember seeing uh, all the protesters gathered up at yeah. the airport. We yeah. didn't have all the security like you do today. Yeah. Uh, and the service guys coming off in full uniform, yeah. and and the treatment they got yeah. was despicable. Yeah, let me tell you why you say that. It you literally reminded me of something I'd totally forgotten about. But so when I was at Walter Reed, once I got out of being an inpatient, I stayed at in a hotel in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, and every day would drive onto the base at Walter Reed Army Medical Center for my physical therapy. And I forgot this, but there was actually a group of protesters outside the gate at Walter Reed every single day for the nine months I was there. Every single day. But my point is, you know, I talked about how people were so grateful, and I totally... I mean, even having said that, we're talking about this small little band of people who would come out there yeah. every, and I, yeah. to me, I thought, you know, I serve for your right to to yeah, do that kind of exactly stuff, and it's right. totally fine with me yeah. that you're out there. It was a lot more widespread and pervasive during Vietnam. Yeah. This is just a bad deal. Yeah, all, exactly. All the way exactly. All right, so uh, give us a brief update. What you got going on at the uh, Justice Institute? I know you got some high profile yeah, cases. Yeah, yeah, no. So we, uh, you may have seen recently, we uh, we uh, kind of won a case that we had sued on behalf of a weight loss coach here in Madison. 
uh, the government was telling her that even though she had a degree in nutrition and all of this, she could not tell people how to lose weight. And by the way, we're the fattest state in the nation. I'm not kidding. We we have the number one rate of obesity. She's trying to help people with that. And the government said, nope, you've got to be a licensed dietitian. Again, she's not. she wasn't trying to treat medical conditions or anything. It was literally just, here's how you can drop a couple pounds. So the government threatened to throw her in jail and fine her $1,000 and file a civil suit against her if she didn't stop. We filed a lawsuit on behalf of her. her name is Donna Harris. She she works here in Madison. And so we just got the law changed uh, a couple uh, months ago where now anybody in Mississippi, and the law is, that law has actually just recently gone into effect. So anybody in Mississippi who wants to teach people how to lose weight can do that without having a dietitian's license. Now, you just have to make sure you don't claim to be a licensed dietitian and you don't try to treat a medical condition. As long as you do, you, you know, you, you stay in line with that, you're fine. So that was the latest mm-hmm. one we had. Um, of course, you know that we're still litigating that certificate of need case. Um, as you know, Gerard, the wheels of justice grind very slowly. And so um, we know we've overcome a motion to dismiss on that. We are now in the phase of, of getting into what's called discovery. And so we're just right. kind of doing that's going to take, a, you know, it's going to probably be a year before that case really gets to the to the end of the track. But we're continuing on with that. And then, of course, you know, um, if anybody is listening, I mean, we're always in search for you know, new good cases. Of course, we can't take every case that comes our way, but we're always looking. So if, if uh, you know, you're a citizen in Mississippi that, you know, you believe that your constitutional rights are being violated by some kind of government action that's maybe keeping you from earning a living or keeping you from uh, speaking freely or exercising your, your gun rights or whatever the case may be, religious liberty, we're always, uh, you know, searching for people who are experiencing that so that we can help them with those problems. And that's one of the things we're doing right now, too, is kind of going around the state, uh, educating people on the work that we're doing, the work we've already done. Uh, the Mississippi Justice Institute has been around, you know, for for around six years now, and so, you know, I think we've got a little bit of a track record now of of being able to help people with these. And it's not just talking the talk, telling people what we want to do, but we can show people a track record of success and being sure. able to come into court and change these government policies uh, pretty much single-handedly, you know, and so so that's one of the things we're doing, too. Before you go, a couple of minutes, any thoughts about the Dobbs case? Might get a ruling any day. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean, well, the I think you and I have discussed that the leak itself is just, I, I'm still blown away that that happened, and it's just... It's been quiet. I not heard anything it, it about ha- that. It has been quiet, and you still don't see really any a lot of outrage about the fact that it happened. Yeah. And I, I think it really hurts the U.S. Supreme Court moving forward. I mean, the ability of the justices to be candid with each other and to have the discussions they need to have. But aside from that, I do think, you know, it, it looks, all indications are that that opinion is going to you know, hold sway. I mean, we're going to get a, a majority opinion that looks like something close to what we already saw. And so uh, I, I'm glad about that. I think that Roe v. Wade was absolutely, you know, not um, correct law from day one. And, you know, everybody who wants to lose their mind about that, I mean, we've got federalism in America. And you can talk to, you know, uh, the, the people who run your state about what policy you would like to see in your state. And this, the policy in California is not going to be the policy in Mississippi, and that's that's okay. That's a good thing. The left says it's the end of democracy. I say, I argue, no, it's actually a shining sample. <laughs> this, is, this is an example of democracy. I mean, what do you mean? You know, I mean, and you had what you had was the courts really go. usurped something. So Appreciate yeah. it, Aaron. Thanks yep. for coming on. Good to see you. Good seeing Thank you, too, you for Gerard. your service. We'll Thank be you. right back. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. in the Element Well Studios. Appreciate the mayor of Greenville, Mississippi coming on. See what happens for that, on that uh, front. So, uh, lots of text rolling in here on the C Spire text line. Let's see, the Park Commission is already at a 300k deficit this year in Greenville because the commissioner signed a bunch of contracts with rappers for a festival without the council knowing. Hmm. Well, I got to tell you, uh, you know, it's complicated stuff, but it would be surprising to me that a single council member can bind a city. I, I don't think so. I mean, a single council member should not have binding legal authority. Shouldn't. I mean, I can tell you, in, in the private sector... You better make sure whoever signs contracts has binding authority. And the contracts should have a legal statement close to the signature. It needs to be someone who has that legal ability to enter into a contract on both sides. I've seen that tested before. It don't go well if whomever the signatories are if there is one certainly party in, a, in an agreement, in a contract, that doesn't have binding authority. I'll tell you, in my company, it's about three people, and I'm one of them. And as the CEO, and honestly, we had it all automated. It was, all, it was totally electronic. We were an early adopter of digital signatures a long time ago, before anybody ever heard of DocuSign. And you know, it's not surprising, Rhino, at first, we had a number of customers that were um, leery of digital signature and insisted that, no, let's print them out and sign them and fax them back and forth and all that kind of stuff, including the state of Mississippi, where I always thought it was silly. We'd have four-part contracts or four, um, four copies, should say, of contracts uh, in the state. And we literally would have somebody go down to town to pick them up, bring them to me for two seconds to sign, and then bring them back for them to sign, and then bring back the copies. Oh, yeah. In big cities, there's entire services that do that. Yeah. Bike couriers and it's like, right. well, they like, used to. Like, dude, why can't we do this electronically? I, I never understood that. But nonetheless, back to this point, uh, he says the director of uh, this is Pat Dale from the Delta. The director of the Park Commission's had them sign, and in Greenville, the Park Commission works on their own budget. But when they go over budget, guess who has to pay it? I mean, I still say though, Pat, honestly, that that is that's a problem. I would say in the structure of uh, the legal framework under which 
the or any city operates, I, you just got to be careful with binding authority there. And certainly some single member of a council shouldn't have the, I don't think, it's good business, the authority to bind a contract. Anyhow, I, so I, you know, I really don't know about um, relying on what Pat's telling us here about the deficit and so forth. It's just kind of crazy. Um, Gina Mendehall says Jackson can't hand out water bills. Wait till the trash stops running. Yeah, I, I hear you. And uh, the billing system, having worked with the city of Jackson from an IT perspective as a vendor for 25 years, um, and, and you know, obviously abiding by their procurement policies and rules. And it does bring up an interesting thought that I had about this whole deal, honestly. And that is, just think about how to connect the dots here. This, I believe, is a very pointed example of what you've heard me describe on the program as the march to mediocrity. And here's what I mean by that. Public sector entities, and now, to a great extent, even private sector entities, their procurement processes are are not as I think many people perceive. Here's what I mean. To do business with most municipalities in this country, in some cases, states, but certainly at the municipal and county level, as a vendor, as a contractor to those levels of government, it's, pretty, it's been a pretty widespread and common practice to require minority vendor participation, what they call MBE, Minority Business Enterprise. Remember we had... Um, the contract compliance officer from the Jackson Municipal Airport Authority on, I think, last week, talking about the um, Aviation Industry Day, which was uh, really a business event to try to connect minority vendors with the three airports, Golden Triangle, Jackson Municipal, and uh, Gulfport Biloxi. Is it Gulfport Biloxi or Biloxi Gulfport? Please go Port Biloxi, if I'm not mistaken. So anyhow, you know what I'm talking about. The one on the coast that has... Go Port uh, Biloxi International. Okay, had it right. Thank you. So uh, any, anyhow, and remember that she shared with us her, her function is to ensure contract compliance. And I can't remember the acronym, Rhino, remember, because I had to ask her. I wasn't sure what it meant. My experience, the acronym was always MBE, Minority Business Enterprise. Maybe it was like disadvantaged or something like you remember that? It seems to be one of the letters in it. But no, it's the same deal, nonetheless. So in general, though, procurement, and it, I know this to be the case in the city of Jackson, because I did a lot of business with the city of Jackson, you've got to have a certain percentage of your contract has got to include um, it's got to, got to include vendors in that contract that are minority-owned, okay, to qualify as a minority business enterprise and registered with the city as a minority business enterprise. And unless, I want to say, uh, it's been a while, 20% of the value of the contract 
had to be allocated to an MBE. And that's very common. I've done business in New Orleans, in Memphis, in Birmingham, in Atlanta. Very common. Very common practice. Very common policy in procurement. So I think the common perception of the taxpayer is, well, procurement of uh, using public money is done through some comprehensive, totally transparent and fair bid process, an RFP process, request for proposal, which is typically a lot more involved than, uh, than just a simple bid. Bid is just, okay, we want to buy some of these, what's your price? RFP is provide us a proposal to, to perform certain work as described in the RFP, and usually those things can be quite extensive. I mean, we, I've done uh, many in my career where the RFP itself was uh, several two- or three-inch binders. And, of course, the response would be about triple that. You know, you'd have to have, to have a cart to bring in your response. And there's usually a scoring mechanism and a, and a scoring system that is typically published. Sometimes it's included in the RFP. Sometimes it's post-RFP. But the, the scoring is, uh, it is subjective except for the financial aspect, which of course is objective. And then there's, there are weights assigned to the various categories of scoring. The state of Mississippi conducts its RFP process consistent with these standards and has for years. It's quite fair. But in the case typically of municipalities, there is a, min, a minority business enterprise participation requirement. And you may have the lowest and best, not the lowest necessarily, but the lowest and best, meaning you meet the requirements, the specifications of what is being procured in accordance with the RFP, and you scored the best in terms of the technical value and the technical quality of your proposal, and, and you're meeting the specifications, et cetera, et cetera, all kinds of qualitative scoring categories. And you may, and combine that with the weight of your financial price, and you win. But if you don't have sufficient minority participation, you lose. And in fact, contracts get awarded at a higher price, at a premium to the taxpayer, simply because a vendor, the winning vendor, included the required minority participation maybe even exceeded it and therefore got additional points in the scoring mechanism. So the taxpayers actually pay a premium to do business with vendors that are either minorities or include certain minority participation. It's not, let's buy the best value. That's not the goal at all. We'll continue this discussion as we go into a break here on uh, Middays, and we'll be right back. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Properly set all controls before recording. All systems go. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Now, when I was a young boy, 
Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Kyle and Jackson. So we were just talking about this minority participation requirement, which is nothing new. It's been around for a long time. I think what's relatively new, however, is the rather sharp increase of private sector entities, all again uh, going back to the George Floyd incident. After that, all sorts of large private companies adopted and, and published all sorts of policies where they're given incredible preferential treatment to minority-owned enterprises and, and pledged to, to increase the percentage of their total spend uh, with minority vendors. Whether they're the best vendor offering the best quality product service at the lowest price, in other words, the best value for the entity, irrelevant. In the case, so that's private company. They can do what the heck they want. Now, I can tell you, I've been on the losing end of that with some fortune companies where we lost deals. We had the clearly the best solution, the lowest cost, best value solution, and lost. And we're told, you're not a minority enterprise. Sorry, this money's going over here. In the public sector, it's different because whereas in the private sector, I could argue reasonably that 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 is an, an abdication of fiduciary responsibility when management at a private company is not looking out for the stockholders by by investing with, spending money with vendors who provide the best value to the company. In the case of the public sector, such as a municipality, well, it's the taxpayers on the hook. And I have personally been involved in a number of uh, fairly large procurements and lost simply because we either didn't, to their satisfaction, meet the minority participation requirement or that we were not a minority-owned business. Now, it gets gained, there's no doubt, where you'll get non-minority-owned businesses that will turn around and subcontract it, or actually vice versa, this is a more common case. The minority-owned business, which is just a shell that has zero capabilities, I've seen this in my industry, in the IT industry, and they'll uh, respond and be the prime contractor, respond to the RFP, be the prime contractor. They do zero work and turn around and subcontract it to a non-minority vendor who actually does the work. After taking their nice cut. Correct. And they get and, and by the way, it's not that it renders them uncompetitive because you've got these multiple layers of people getting compensated. No, in fact, again, they pay a premium. It's, and I, I have been, Rhino, I promise this, I'm telling the truth here, it, I, sure as I'm sitting here. I have been at what's called bid openings, could, could be giant RFPs, right? And in some situations, um, the buyer, the owner, let's just call it a city, they'll have like a summary sheet they'll ask you to prepare to include in your, you know, four-inch thick RFP response, and you put the summary sheet on the top. So quickly, the the uh, those that are receiving the RFPs from the various vendors at the day and time you're to deliver it can get a quick summary. So they look at it, and the first thing they look at is the minority participation. 
They could care less about the quality of the solution, the cost of it. How much minority participation are you saying you got? That's all they care about. So I'm, I'm simply saying that Jackson, like so many other municipalities, is operated under such a procurement environment for decades. And when you do so, you're not getting the best value for the taxpayers. Is that saying that no minority entities can uh, properly serve the city? No, it's not saying that. What I'm saying is when, again, what you are, as we say so many times, rather than who you are, is what rules the day and, uh, and the way money is spent, it's irresponsible. And it's a march to mediocrity. I remember participating, and I'm just sharing my little teeny tiny anecdotal world. I know there's a million other examples out there, but this constant uh, focus and obsession with what's the race and the gender and the other status, the, the again, the what, the physical attributes of those that are vending to the entity, when that becomes a greater focus, then we got to solve the problem here, <laughs> and we got to do it in a, in a financially responsible manner as a fiduciary for the taxpayers. Well, that gets kind of shoved off to the side. It's more important. It, it's almost soft reparations, folks, if you want to know the truth. just is. That's the way that stuff works. And I've seen examples where we lost vendor that won because of their minority participation, failed in the middle of the project. We were brought in to bail them out. Unbelievable. We'll step aside right here. We'll come back with more. We got Russ Latino. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. And now, now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone, to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Gerard and Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios. Joining us now, Melvin Gatewood, retired Army combat veteran and co-founder of Operation Continue Service. Uh, good morning, Melvin. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you for your service, sir. Good morning, Gerard. Thank you for having me. You bet. So we wanted to have you on to talk about uh, the Ruck event. Tell us, uh, tell our audience exactly what a Ruck event is. You guys just completed that, right? Yes, we. With Operation Continued Service, our motto is remembering those who have fallen while motivating those that still stand. So the Ruck that we did on Saturday in Starksville, from Starksville, Mississippi to Columbus, was considered a recovery Ruck, and that is more mental health based. Okay, so, so I'm sorry. Go ahead, Melvin. Please. No, I was just going to say, so with the recovery rug, we are <clears throat> we are wearing the backpack, and the backpack symbolizes the mental anguish and the mental issues that veterans deal with both in the military and out of the military. I have a vest that I have that it has 
MST, PTSD, anger, racism, depression, and anxiety, just to name some of the issues, but also inside the backpack, we have bricks, uh, and we have those hmm. labeled as well, so those are what we carry during that recovery rub. I got you. So uh, what's the distance that you walk with those backpacks loaded down like that? On this particular one, we did 20 miles. Wow. 20 miles like that. Good grief. That's, uh, that's a lot. But so, and, and that's designed to essentially simulate the hardship and the challenges of, uh, of our veterans. Yes. Gotcha. So, All right. Initially, the RUC was to bring awareness of veteran suicide and mental health issues. And we also had veterans from within the community. We had assistant chief um, of police over in Starfield, Mr. Henry Stewart. He walked with us. We had another veteran that served with me in Iraq from out of uh, Clarksville. He came up to RUC with us. But the other individuals were members of Operation Continued Service. Gotcha. I understand. How how long have, have these ruck events been going on, Melvin? Well, we did our first memorial ruck in 2019 to remember uh, Sergeant Travis Cooper in Macon, Mississippi, where we did 22 miles from West Lowndes Elementary School to the Oddfellow Cemetery in Macon, Mississippi, where he's buried. Mm, interesting. Uh, is this something that occurs across the country? As well, are there other uh, well, no, ruck events? No, well, yeah, it's other ruck events, but yep. as for with Operation Continued Service, okay. we only are doing Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee. Gotcha. Understand. All right. So, mental health as it pertains to our veterans, this is a serious problem that that needs attention. Uh, tell us about what's going on there. So when I'm actually employed by the Department of Veteran Affairs, so the nonprofit is something that I do on the side. I hear from veterans daily when I call to check in on them. I hear them saying that I'm looking for outlets. I'm looking for a way to get engaged. So to stop the isolation of veterans just being in, in the home and trying to get them engaged, we want to come into communities and we want to engage with them with the rooks. We're not asking anybody to do 20 miles. The 20 miles is really just to get the attention. Yeah. When we're doing the, uh, the rooks inside the communities, like I do a rook every month here in Middle Tennessee and Mount Juliet, and it might be five to three miles. And so getting veterans out or family members of veterans out to come on the rooks. And while we're rucking, we're talking, hey, what's going on? Tell me uh, about how, how things have been going with you. And then you have an individual open up and they will start sharing. We are not licensed clinical professionals, but we are, we know licensed clinical professionals that we could refer the individuals to. We could uh, refer them to the uh, Wounded Warrior Project, the Department of Veteran Affairs, the Simplify America's Fund. Or like what we did Saturday at the end of our rook, we had a big resource fair where we had the Tuscaloosa VA Medical Center come over. We had the Wounded Warrior Project. They had a table. The Simplify America's Fund, they had a table. But it's also important to get those local uh, providers to come in as well where we had community counseling. And then we had some private counseling agencies, Harris Counseling Services. She came in. And then we had another individual with uh, I think it was Safe Talk, where uh, veterans are 
anyone that's dealing with mental health issues, they can call in and they can talk to a, um, a professional about those issues. How big an issue is this, Melvin, this, this mental health situation within the uh, community of veterans? It's very serious. Uh, at one point in time, we heard 22 a day. I think that we, um, the last time that I got the data on it, I think it was uh, a little under around 17, but one is too many. Sure. Wow. I've known uh, of individuals, even in the area where we were working, that we have had um, veteran suicides there. I've had personal people who I've served with who I know we have lost to uh, loss of suicide. So we just want veterans to know that we are here for them. And if we are out, we're doing the rooks. And also one of the other things that we do with our organization is do veterans coffee social. We had the opportunity to go over to the Center for American Veterans there on Friday uh, at Mississippi State and host uh, our second veteran coffee social there where we have veterans come in, get coffee, chat with other veterans. And also we have resource table where they can pick up resources um, as well. Yeah. Uh, wow. So you guys are trying to, uh, I guess, get the word out and make it known that these, these veterans that are, are suffering from a depression or other just uh, mental health issues, that there are resources available to work with them, to counsel them, and, and, uh, and, and get them in the right place so they don't take their own lives. Yes, most definitely, especially with uh, underserved uh, areas and uh, areas that have limited access so we are very passionate about those small towns. Yeah, Melvin, what what typically is the is the cause or the reason why a veteran would get to that point, such that they would uh, even consider taking their own life? What what is uh, what is it unique about? Is it something they encountered while in combat, in, in particular, where they witnessed firsthand these atrocities? I know you you ter- you too, sir, are a combat veteran. Yeah, I'm a combat veteran and I'm a Purple Heart recipient. Every case um, differ. Um, it can be something that happened overseas that they just haven't gotten over and they haven't processed it. Or it could just be your daily interactions as for financial issues. Yeah. It can be um, the anxiety of um, having um, to be a father, having to be a husband, and you're not making ends meet. Um, I think that the big picture of what they experience in Iraq or in combat, that does play a, a major part on it as well, especially with having survival remorse. Okay, survival remorse. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but of course, that mm-hmm. I, I got to believe that's just hard to uh, to reconcile and come to grips with if you've had any situation like that. Are are you? Aware of any individuals that got very close to that point, but were able to get uh, proper clinical treatment and and help to avoid. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So you yes, know, you know the because, treatment uh, works, and it, it's just a matter of getting them connected to it. Yes, I know that the treatment works, and uh, and the thing is about about this uh, rough march that we did. Someone asked me. They said, "Well, Melvin, how would you gauge the uh, the success of your rough?" I said, "I." I felt that it was successful before we even stepped off because I had a veteran that came to me a couple of days before we um, actually did the rug and said, I heard about what you all was doing. I had to go leave my unit and I had to go down to Jackson to seek help during a drill weekend. And I know with the 
facility did for me. Uh -huh. I know what the program did for me. So that said a lot for me uh, to hear. And it says a lot for our Department of Veteran Affairs, even the one there in Jackson, Mississippi, GV Sunny Montgomery VA, where I was actually employed with at one point in time as well. So we're doing excellent things to help veterans. We just need to let them know that we are here. So I feel that with our organization going there to meet veterans where they are, especially in those small towns, that's very important. And there's a lot of stigma related to mental health. So I want people to know that you're not crazy. There's nothing wrong sure, with you. Sure. And it's okay to seek help. Yeah, excellent guidance and wisdom there. Melvin, thanks so much for joining us here on Middays. Uh, fascinating learning about this. Thank and and uh, most importantly, uh, once again, sir, thank you for your service and your sacrifice uh, to our nation on behalf of the entire nation. Thank you. Appreciate it, Melvin. Thank you. We'll step aside for a break right here on Middays. we got uh, three segments left in this hour, and then we've got Ricky Matthews coming up with Super Talk Outdoors. Stay with us. This show was previously recorded. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Summer, that of course connected to the story we shared in the first segment, the report from J.P. Morgan forecasting that gas prices will rise by 37%, and they entitled the report, Cruel Summer. <laughs> so we had, to, we had to accommodate. Good morning, Mr. Lars Larson, host of the Lars Larson Show. Good to see you. How are you, Lars? Good to see you as well, Gerard. I got to tell you, I heard your discussion about that. Every time I've been to the Gulf states, the gas prices are just amazingly low compared to where I live in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, and now geez. you're telling me you may hit six bucks a gallon in Mississippi? Yeah. Well, uh, what we shared, Lars, I'm sure you know, is that uh, the reports are that the first time in our history the average is above $4 in all 50 states. Yep. So on the way into yep. uh, the studio here this morning, Every sign I saw was north of four bucks, usually four nine, four nineteen, and that's mainly because, uh, as you know, Lars, our our fuel taxes, our state taxes, are relatively low. I think we're next to last of all the fifty states. God bless Mississippi for that. <laughs> and we've managed to keep that uh, in effect because it's been a, a rather contentious issue, political issue, here in the state of Mississippi, whether or not to increase the fuel taxes. Um, as as you can imagine, uh, there are some who benefit from an increase in fuel taxes because that money goes directly to our state highway fund, and they they sure. advocate for that. 
But the taxpayers say, you know, we're taxed enough. We got enough here. Let's let's get our act in order. So it, you know how that works out. It's it's very controversial. But right now, uh, I guess we have amongst the lowest uh, average price in the country. Though north of four dollars doesn't feel like a low average price. Of course, nobody has ever done that uh, in Mississippi and across the country. The Biden administration, we were just talking, as you probably heard, Lars. So what do they do? Go with oh, hat, and, go with hat and hand to Venezuela. It, it, help and, me out and here. The United Arab Emirates as well. They're trying to open that one up. Imagine yeah. this: Joe Biden would rather have dictator oil from Venezuela than free people oil from the United States. It's unbelievable. So uh, around these parts, it is thought that uh, it is actually estimated, and I think it's fairly accurate estimates. It comes from the oil and gas industry that we can we can produce uh, oil out of the Gulf. I think safely. We talked about this yesterday on the show. We have way better technology than we ever have, and, and protocols and procedures in place to guard against any sort of mishap. But we can produce it for thirty dollars a barrel out of the out of the Gulf yeah. here. Well, and Gerard, think about this. I know that a lot of people say, but what about that underwater, you know, the deep water horizon, the the, the blowout? Yeah. And I, I kept reminding people at the time, we've got 4,000 platforms, I think is the current number, out in the Gulf. And so if, if you apply the standard, if we have 4,000 platforms and one has a blowout, and blowouts are relatively rare, right. and they're relatively short-lived, that one was an exception, it would be like saying every time you have one of those chain reaction collisions on the highway and 10 or 20 people get in an accident and oftentimes sometimes people die that you would say well then we should ban car travel altogether on that basis because it's too dangerous because occasionally there is a catastrophe would you apply that to any other part of your life to trains to planes to automobiles i wouldn't it just seems like that every reaction every approach that comes from the left is one uh, that involves a hammer. It never involves a surgical scalpel, if you will. It's always a hammer. And, uh, you look, you know, it's pivoting a bit here, but if you look at this horrific incident in Buffalo, uh, because of this one idiot, this one deranged, demented, hateful fool yep. that goes in and plays shoot em up uh, all of a sudden everybody on the right is responsible for that, including those of us in the talk show business, right? We're we're the reason he went yep. and did that. It's just a. And then I well, saw. Well, let, let me t- let me give you a couple of thoughts on Buffalo because Joe Biden went there to make political hay yesterday. Do you know where he still has not gone? There was a terrible hate crime in Waukesha, Wisconsin. A black man who apparently didn't like white people drove right down the middle of the street and plowed down a bunch of people in a Christmas parade, most of them white. And that was a hate crime. Joe Biden, to this day, has still not visited Waukesha. The second thing to know about the Buffalo murderer, I don't want to call him a shooter. A shooter is a guy like me who goes to the range and shoots paper targets or occasionally goes out and shoots a deer or an elk. But a, a shoot, this is not a shooter. This is a killer. And he ought to be convicted and he ought to be put to death. But having said that, when you read his a whole diatribe, he hated everybody. Yeah. He hated Jews. He hated black people. He didn't like the administration. He didn't like government. I mean, the list of people this guy hated was as long as your arm. But Joe and the media want to make it sound like it's pure, just black and white. And let me point out, too. There was a shooting in a place called Laguna Woods, California. It was at a church. And I'll admit, 
I was born in Taiwan because my mom and dad were in the U.S. Navy, and my dad was deployed at that time, and my mom went to join him. She was out of the Navy by then, so I was born in Taiwan. I love that little country. It is a freedom. It is the free China, a freedom-loving country that is amazingly prosperous, and they stand up against the big bully of communist China. The Chai Coms would like to destroy Taiwan. So what does this guy do? The guy who's been arrested, he has a right to his day in court, but he's a Chinese immigrant from mainland China who emigrated to the United States, apparently brought his hatred with him, and goes to a church full of Taiwanese Presbyterians and murders five people. Now, does Joe Biden mention that hate crime, which was one Chinese person attacking other Chinese people from Taiwan because of his hatred for Taiwan? Uh, he, Joe Biden doesn't even mention that one. He doesn't mention Waukesha. He doesn't mention many of the other hate crimes that have been committed by other people. Hate crimes come in every color. They come in every gender. They come in every sexual preference. But Joe Biden and the Democrats only want to talk about the ones that make political hay for them. It's, uh, I don't know if you caught uh, Megyn Kelly's podcast, uh, Lars. We, we uh, talked about it yesterday. I mean, it got her fired. If she came out of her seat, she got so enraged. And what she said was, Good grief. Can't we just take a minute to grieve the situation? Human life was lost. It, it was butchered. It was destroyed by another human. Can't we just soak that in and, and uh, take a respite and grieve? No. Immediately, we had to go out and politicize it. It just, it's, and I hate to say it, Mars, but it's like, well, the jackpot was hit. It was a white supremacist that went in and murdered black people. Oh, that's the jack, it's like the jackpot. They won the lottery. The only thing's better is if it had been a white cop. And Gerard, the thing we should be asking, which is not politicizing it, we should be saying the police knew about this guy a year ago. The police took this guy into custody and took him down for a mental health evaluation. He was cleared. New York State has these crazy red flag laws, which I think are a violation of due process, and they have a lot of other problems. But did they use the red flag law in this case to say this guy's crazy? Did the FBI, which manages, they can tell you chapter and verse on all 700 people who were at the Capitol on January the 6th, who got arrested and charged with crimes, some of which they did commit. I'll admit that. But <clears throat> did the FBI monitor this guy because the warning signs were all over his social media and they had the heads up that he'd already been arrested for making threats against his school. So it's like the FBI manages to miss every time. You, can, you know the list of all the things the FBI, the Pulse nightclub shooting, yeah. all these other situations where the FBI knew what was going on or had reason, good reason, to have taken fair warning. And they should have looked at this guy's social media. And apparently, if they'd been watching it, we now learned this morning that 30 minutes before he began shooting and killing people and live streaming it from a camera on his helmet, he told people, this is what I'm going to go do. So if they'd been watching this character, they would have had 30 minutes of warning and he'd already been spotted at the store. A security guard walked up to him while he was casing the place within the last couple of months and asked, what are you doing here and why do you keep walking in and out of the store? How many warnings does law enforcement and specifically the FBI need? Or are they too busy going out and tracking parents who show up at school board meetings and get too loud? It's that and, and developing new new pronoun policies, I guess. I, it's just, yeah. It seems like we're so misguided 
and the things that we consider to be priority relative to what should be priorities just never make it. I know you're busy. Can you hang for another segment, Lars? Sure, I can do that. I'm, uh, I'm just hanging here in the studio with my buddy uh, Winston. I remind you, Winston is a uh, he's a son of Pontotoc. So uh, my, my right. big uh, burner, Bernie's Mountain Dog, is from Pontotoc, and he's, <laughs> he's glad awesome. to say hi to his friends in Mississippi. That's awesome. Lars Larson, host of the Lars Larson Show, is our guest on Middays. We're in the Element Well Studios. We'll be right back. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays in the Element Well Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. Don't forget, coming up at 12.05, Sam Creekmore represents District 14. That's Union County, Mississippi. He's a good dude. He very much is, and he's going to be talking about International Overdose Awareness Day and some state legislation that he's involved in dealing with drug education, drug courts in the state, et cetera. And I know Empower has some involvement in that as well. Jeremy in Caledonia on the ceasefire text line says, I have two daughters that could benefit from the loan payoff, but I am not for it. I'm old school. You pay for what you owe. Appreciate that, Jerry. Uh, Excuse me, Jeremy. And I I think a lot of people do feel that way. It's been uh, rather interesting, Russ, is one way to describe it, to uh, consume the reaction across the country. Uh, Very much split, seems to me, down the middle, pro and uh, against student loan forgiveness. Some that are benefiting are against it. Some that are not are against it. Some that are benefiting are not only for it, they're screaming for more. Yeah. Now, I've, I've done some uh, – there's a whole bunch of statistics. I know you've obviously consumed them as well that are published by various organizations, and I try to cross-check them just to make sure they're, they're accurate and check their sources. But – uh, some of the interesting statistics about who actually has the debt. Of course, the higher the degree or the longer you stay in college, the more debt, the more debt you have. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty common uh, sense uh, conclusion there. But I got to tell you, and, and I, I hesitate to even say this, there's a side of me that believes this has also got some racial undertones to it as well. And the NAACP came out and blasted this plan, by the way. Said, does not do enough for black people. Because black women, as a, as a demographic, are uh, their households have, the percentage of their households have more debt than any others. They are more likely to go into student debt 
enter into student debt to fund their education than any other demographic. Uh, and of course, the White House says 95% of those who will benefit have incomes below 75 grand. Um, and there's all kinds of statistics on ratios of, of uh, debt to income, sure. student debt to income. Not surprisingly, unfortunately, Mississippi has the highest. Well, and look, though, even if you're talking about under 75 grand, people with college degrees, statistically, make more money than people without college degrees. Yeah. So you are talking about a scenario where you're taking the top half of the country and giving them a benefit, even if you're cutting out the very top uh, from being eligible. You know, I think all of this, though, misses the point at some level. I I see the debate. There's legitimate points to be made on both sides of it. I'm looking at it going... If you don't address what actually caused the student loan debt to climb to $1.8 trillion or whatever it is, yep. um, then you're not actually doing anything but giving a temporary Band-Aid. It's, you know, it's, it might feel nice in the moment, but you've not fixed the problem. What actually has made college education so expensive? And I believe what has made college education so expensive is free money unchecked from any potential marketability gains that come along with taking out that loan to get the education. Right? Agree. And so it allows colleges to uh, to spend an awful lot of money on climbing walls and lazy rivers and all sorts of nice amenities to attract students in. And the student almost becomes a mark. Yep. It's like, we know that you can get money. So how do we make this super attractive? And by making it super attractive, we're going to make it super expensive. Yep. Right? So look at the inflation numbers on college. I mean, we've been talking about inflation across consumer spending for the last 18 months. Yep. It, it pales into comparison to half a century of college tuition increases. We're talking 5x, the, the standard inflation rate, over that same time period. And it's because we've made access to capital so easy with no consequence or no consideration of the actual outcomes. Are we making that student better off when they emerge from college? Are they able to more easily take care of their families when they emerge from college? And if we're Letting somebody take out $200,000 in student loans for a job that will yield a $30,000 a year income, that seems like a broken system to me. No doubt I mean, about it. It seems fundamentally like a broken system. And I hold students responsible for signing that paper. I do. Even at 18, I think there's some personal responsibility associated with that. But we've got to be willing to look at it and say other people have skin in this game and are profiting from what is a broken system. Totally agree. I absolutely agree. Um, uh, just imagine if, if I were in the private sector uh, and I was selling a, a product or service that the, the government was essentially uh, backing up the payment for, uh, I could probably sell a whole lot more of it. And that's really sure. what this is. And you could do it without any traditional free market uh, measures to balance and it out. And why do you need to control cost? Right. You, you don't. There's, there's, no, there's no incentive to do so. No right. motivation to do so. And so that's a real problem that gets paid off later by some guy who's going, I went two hundred grand into debt for a thirty grand a year job. No doubt and about I, it. Look, I had friends when I was at Tulane that did that. Tulane had a school of social work. It was one of the better schools of social work. They got out and became social workers. That is a noble profession. No doubt. But if you're sitting on 200 k in debt, it's difficult. They never get out. 
Never get out. Yeah, you never get out. And so a couple of other um, reforms that were included in uh, this president's plan that I found interesting, I was talking to Rhino about before we came on the air, when you look at these these various income-based repayment mechanisms that are available. So before he signed off on this order, the uh, income-based repayment process, the structure, was uh, limited. Your payments were, were limited to 10% of what's d- defined as your discretionary income. Well, that's been half to 5%. When payments resume, if they ever resume. The other thing is, after paying for 20 years the rem- at that level, the remaining debt forgiven. That's been in place for a while. That has now been half to 10 years. So the amount you're going to pay is going to be cut, and then the length you're going to pay is going to be t- cut for those that will continue to pay on their student debt. So that was a kind of a major change. That's why Penn Wharton came out and said, oh, this is more like a trillion-dollar example when you start figuring in the cost of money over that period of yeah. time with all, all those adjustments. Honestly, until I started digging into this income-based repayment structure, I wasn't aware of that, that that's how it worked, and that you had this automatic forgiveness after 20 years of paying. But there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have zero payments when payments resume, zero cost, zero dollar monthly payments when they resume, because they also change the way discretionary income is computed. So, so there are two thoughts that I've got on how you could potentially fix this. Um, one is to allow the debt to be dischargeable in bankruptcy, which would certainly give some uh, some interest on the part of the government or lenders uh, to run better assessments on the front end. Yep. Um, the other thought process is uh, to essentially create a a larger segment that the college is responsible for in the in the event of a default. Yeah. Um, which would create some incentive for a college to say, "Hey, we're not going to keep offering programs that aren't actually marketable programs." The final thing is to say the federal government shouldn't be backing student loans, or it should be limited in how it backs student loans. Well, doesn't this just bring up the fundamental question, though, Russ, that what is the role of the federal government? I mean, this really is a question. I mean, it really is, because we have $31 trillion in debt that I would argue, to a great extent, is because we sort of went outside of our swim lane of of the constitutional function of government, and we spent a bunch of money for stuff we shouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, my perspective is Article 1, Section 8 is the the functional role of of the federal government, but that hasn't been the case for a very long time. I I will say this, though, because you made this point earlier, and I think it's important. Yes, we're $30 trillion in debt, and what does that even mean at this point? Yeah. Um, but I, I sort of, whenever people say, hey, we're already $30 trillion in debt, so why not another trillion? I look at that and say, well, would you say if you had been cut seven times by a knife, I've been cut seven times, so cut me an eighth and ninth? <laughs> you know, like, or, or you punch me four times, so you, you can punch me a fifth? What's the big deal? Yeah. At some point, you have to make measure to stop the bleeding. I think people believe that the music will always continue in the United States, but if we don't at some point restore fiscal sanity, the music will stop and we will be left without a chair to sit in. Yeah. And it, it just strikes me that we have had so much. We've been a country with so great of a lifestyle, so high of incomes, so great a quality of life, that we've become accustomed to it, 
And we don't realize that, you know, if we lose reserve currency status in the world as an example, suddenly a lot of what we are living at goes down really, really quickly in terms of quality of life. We'll all get hurt, no doubt about it. So, yeah. Um, anyhow, you want to come back for now? I got another thought I want to share with you if you can stay yeah, around. Yeah, sure. yeah. We got Russ Latino, president of Empower Mississippi. It's just uh, your, your great uh, discussion about uh, finding the root cause, whether it's water or education. Sure. Let's talk about that when we come back. Russ Latino, president of Empower Mississippi. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays in the Element Wealth Studios, Super Talk Mississippi. Uh, Rhino, please give the kangaroo a sedative. Because the kangaroo on the market is jumping all over the place. It's a tranquilizer dart. <laughs> so, uh, Aaron from Madison asks on the ceasefire text line, what about new student loans? So, I haven't dug too terribly deep into the mechanics, but my understanding is it's as of a certain date, right? Whatever's on the books. What's your understanding, Russ? I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I think what I would say is because I take this question a little differently, is like, what happens moving forward? Yeah. Like, is this a one-time thing, or are we entered into a situation where every few years we've got to do a new forgiveness? Um, and you made this point earlier that the reaction was interesting in that there were people who are more conservative in thought who said, well, you have a contractual obligation, you need to pay your own loan. And then there were people on the left side of the spectrum who said, well, clearly this is just not enough. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. You need to do a lot more. And so the the real sort of debate here is a debate over who ultimately is responsible for paying for college. Yep. Agree. And I think there probably is a certain element of the country that is not just looking for, for relief from debt that was too high relative to the degree that they obtained, yeah. uh, but that fundamentally believe that the government has a responsible to, uh, responsibility to take care of people from cradle to grave. Um, and for lots of reasons, I don't believe that. It's not constitutional. It's also not in the best interest of anybody I Agree. Um, for the government to take care of us from cradle to grave. You've, if you look at instances in our history where the government has treated people essentially as wards of the state, those people tend to end up in really bad situations. No doubt about it. Um, success and prosperity are a byproduct of people being able to use their skills, their knowledge, their work ethic to create something valuable that other people see the value in and want to buy. Um, and and it, is, um, it is a scary commentary if you look at it from a 30,000-foot view that this isn't just about debt relief. It really is about a movement towards more government 
subsistence for people, that treats people as dependents instead of as contributors, and I think that's a really sad thing for our country. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you, but <laughs> we have uh, sort of flipped to a point, Rhino and I talk about it regularly well, on the program. We're already past the point of no, no well, return? No, I mean, there, there's this very, I think, um, um, pervasive attitude in this country that delayed gratification, rugged individualism, individual responsibilities are tenets of uh, European white uh, supremacy. And so, I mean, they're, they're right on, gosh, how many articles have we read and, and talked about, videos we've played? This is being taught in our school. It's being taught in the private sector, even. That, and, that belief, that if you believe that having the freedom to earn prosperity for yourself, that is a form of Eurocentric white supremacy? If you're willing to sacrifice to do so, to wait for some reward, some financial benefit down the road, delayed gratification, yes. Well, these are the thoughts of children. Where, where, Where do they think money comes from? How do they think productivity happens? The one that shocked me. I mean, like these aren't serious thoughts by by serious people. <laughs> well, I can tell you. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. Yeah, I I agree with you, and it's disturbing. It's what I call the march to mediocrity. But one of the first ones I remember us talking about here. This was in 2020. Was Sandia Labs? These are the, this is the organization that produces America's uh, nuclear arsenal. And they, like so many other corporations, virtually everyone in the country, they hire this third-party diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. They take all the executives off-site, and they tell them that rugged individualism and having a can-do attitude are elements of white supremacy, and you got to just erase those out of your culture. A can-do attitude. You remember that, Rhino? I mean, we, and if we you, verified that. If you believe that. in yourself, if you believe in yourself, that's white supremacy. Right. Yes. I, I can't think of anything more destructive than the idea of saying you shouldn't believe that you have the capability of achieving something that is great. I, I, agree I cannot more. think of anything more destructive to the human spirit than that. And, and it is that it is veiled in this sense of moral superiority is is abhorrent. The trainers taught that I'm reading it. Rugged individualism, a can-do attitude, hard work, and striving towards success are, in fact, quote, devastating to women and people of color, that they are rooted in, quote, white male culture, which leads to, quote, lowered quality of life at work, at home, reduced life expectancy, unproductive relationships, and high stress. It forces the, quote, white male standard. Until we can decide what's good and bad... Who's going to grow the food? Who's going to produce the technology? I mean, again, these are the thoughts of children who have lived a privileged life and don't realize what it takes to be successful. Okay. Anyway, Well, sorry. you know, I totally agree with you. It incenses me. I get pretty fired up. You, and you, got, go you got me down. fired up today. <laughs> but And we got to keep sounding the alarm. We'll come right back. Thank you, Russ. Appreciate it. Sam Creekmore, our guest next. This show was previous this show was previously recorded. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk, Mississippi. 
We are back in the LMA Well Studios, the 10-year Treasury sitting at 3.85% up nine basis points today, and that is pressuring stocks. It will also put a hurting on your credit card rates, your mortgage rates, your auto rates, etc. They are all generally tied to the uh, the 10-year uh, note. So we'll see uh, where all that goes, but it's you know, it's just so volatile, as Rhino says. It's the <clears throat> kangaroo hopping all over the place. There's really no clarity whatsoever. All I know is that we got a government that doesn't seem to be interested in enacting any policy that would promote supply, such as making the Trump tax cuts permanent or cutting the red tape from the regulatory monstrosity, telling the fossil fuels industry, have at it, we're going to get off your back. That's the first thing they ought to do, honestly. But there's no interest in that whatsoever. And stripping all this climate change and equity narrative out of the uh, from being the central theme in policy making, it does seem like it is the central theme. It is the heart. And early on, when Joe Biden was elected, he made it clear through a directive that all agencies will consider climate change and equity in all of their policy making activity. That's he made that clear day one, and certainly they have been busy doing that, and we're paying the price for it. There's a price to be paid for that. I just uh, ordered a new keyboard for my home computer. There's a particular kind of keyboard that I that I like. And uh, the one I have is acting up a little bit. And so I just checked on the status with the, the maker, the supplier of that keyboard, and while we were off the air there, can't get components. Same old story, right? Struggling to get certain components to make the keyboard itself. Said, if you want to cancel, we understand. And they don't have a date. Can't, can't provide a, a shipping date at this point. Because a lot of the components that we use in manufacturing in America are made in China. And Scuttlebutt is coming out of China that... In the last month alone, they've had 250 million COVID cases. Yeah. They are relaxing some of the restrictions, but I don't think it's helping. And, and, and why are they have so the question is, why are they having such a surge? It's because they locked everybody down, and they never really spread it to achieve any sort of so-called herd immunity. So many of these people, it's the first time they've been infected, I submit that a lot of us that have been infected have probably been exposed to it since then, but didn't have a reinfection because we had some degree of immunity. Now, it's not everybody. Everybody's body's different, responds differently. But they didn't. You know, they insisted on locking the whole dang place down, this zero-COVID policy, and now they're relaxing that somewhat because it was taking its toll on their economy. 
And in doing so, the thing's spreading like crazy. Yeah, that's a that's an incredible number. What'd you say? Two hundred and fifty million. Two hundred and fifty million in the last month alone. So that's a hundred million less than a hundred million less than the total population of this country. That's incredible to think about. That many people. They don't have the health care resources to deal with that. And I've seen, you've probably seen some of the video of it. It's it's heartbreaking. People are sick, can't do anything about it. Dumb. But yet they're selling to their population that the approach taken here, which was, I think, more restrictive in retrospect than it should and could have been. Well, China has proven in the last two-plus years that they're really good at control. They're not very good at actual governance. Right. That's exactly right. And they rely on keeping their population in the dark to control them. You, They only see, or they at least attempt to only allow them to see information they want them to see. You don't need to see what happens over there in America. You don't need to see the crowds at the World Cup where there's right. 30,000, 40,000 crammed into a stadium without wearing masks. Right. And no outbreak, right, after that. I haven't heard anything. Yeah, I agree. Mm. It's really incredible, and, and they still are able to get away with it. By the way, Chuck Schumer, I was talking about him and how he... He's been blasting, of course, corporations. They make too much money, and we got to cut them down to size and and just tax the ever-loving breath out of them and somewhat celebratory that so many in our society that have significant investment holdings have seen the value of those holdings plummet rather dramatically over the past year. He's seeing that as a silver lining. It's a good, it's a good thing because it reduces the so-called wealth gap. With respect to stock buybacks, you remember we discussed this when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. There is a provision in it that will tax companies uh, of a certain size. I believe it's a 1% tax, excise tax on stock buybacks. And all a stock buyback is, is when a public company uses cash on its balance sheet to buy its own stock. And in, and in doing so, it props up the value of the stock, just less in the float, less available for the public to buy, and that drives the price up. It's, it's a financial strategy that's been used for decades by public companies. Schumer says, quote, I hate stock buybacks. I think they are one of the most self-serving things that corporate America does. As long as people like him hold the opinion that the purpose of corporations is not to deliver goods and services that the market consumes, and in exchange for that, they produce a profit. No, that's not what he thinks their purpose is. Their purpose is just to give money away, and to operate without a profit. And just dole all that out to the community. Combination of their workers and others 
without producing a profit. It's not to maximize profits, just like this Fairfax school. Their, her idea, this principle was, no, we got to level the playing field. Nobody here gets any rewards. All equal. All just indiscernible blobs sitting on a shelf that they'll mold into whatever they want. I mean, that really is the leftist idea. But And it doesn't stop there. I, I couldn't find the uh, the letter that was sent to parents, so I can't give you the school where it was, but I did read a letter that was sent home to parents of, I believe, middle school age, like fourth to eighth grade students, Yeah, where every student was being assigned a final grade based on the average of the class. I saw that. Now, where did where was that happening? I couldn't find I where I saved too. it to, to double-check, but I remember it was every student was receiving the average grade, and the average grade was 83%. I, I caught that same report. I'm uh, sorry that I didn't save that so that we could share the details of it, but I saw the exact same. You, so you see, once again, where it's going, and that idea, I guarantee, is going to gain traction. Going to gain traction in this country. Everybody's the same. That's their idea of equity. And it doesn't apply just to grades in a classroom. That's the way they want all society to function. That's China, essentially. It's North Korea. That's the way it functions. Exactly like that. Corporations don't exist to just produce anything but goods and services to serve society, to provide value to society. And in exchange for that value, people part with their money. They make those decisions. Government doesn't figure out, is not responsible, is not authorized to, is not commissioned to tell these companies how to operate. That just whew, grinds my gears. Middays is stepping aside for a break. We're in the Element Well Studios today, coming right back. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Some people call me the space cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. The great Steve Miller. People talk about me, baby. Middays back with you in the Element Well Studios. Just saw that uh, on the Business Channel here that Southwest announces more cancellations. Not out of the woods yet. Yeah, I saw reporting where they may be having to do a complete reset and shutdown of their systems, similar to what I believe it was Spirit Airlines had to do yeah. back in, wasn't August of this year, I think it was August of last year. Sounds but, right. Yeah. Not good if you were trying to get home via Southwest. Nope. Mm-mm-mm. 
I can only pray for the citizens who elected the circular firing squad in Washington. It goes far beyond, bless their hearts, says J.D. in Eudora. Is the water out at the Capitol? Session is about to begin. Portolets, portolets strewn again on the Capitol grounds. It's a disgrace, particularly for visitors and dignitaries coming to Jackson to do the state's business. I don't know. I haven't been down there, haven't seen. Take your word for it. I'm assuming that you've actually seen that. Also, this uh, on the ceasefire text line from this individual, can't drink, can't cook, can't flush. Is there any wonder the frustrations and crime rate escalates in Jackson? A cascading failure of epic proportions, yet the state won't step in and place the city into receivership. These residents desperately need help. Heck, I don't know what the state could do if they stepped in here. I, I mean, it, I, then I think you'd get pushed back from other residents within the state, outside of the city of Jackson, who are essentially are taking on the responsibility for the city. I don't think that's the solution. State- Unless we forget, the residents of Jackson voted a 1% tax increase that was supposed to go to fixing the water infrastructure in 2014. That's right. Voted overwhelmingly for it, like 8 or 9 out of 10. And I believe in the state of Mississippi you have to get authorization from the legislature to do so, right? Self-tax Which is one increase. of the reasons last year when they tried to do the same thing and get another 1% increase, the legislature shot them down. Yeah. Said you just did this less than a decade ago and you didn't do anything with it. Yeah. Well, and then you st- I haven't looked at the revenue figures for the city of Jackson, but seems like there's you got a steady exit of businesses who sell stuff within the city limits to produce those sales taxes. There's boarded up, empty, abandoned structures all over the place that once housed restaurants, retailers, etc., that sell goods and services that produce sales taxes. On the ceasefire tax line, mailman Clayton says, can the incoming Republican majority rescind any of this new budget? The short answer is no. Mailman Clayton, sorry I, uh, about that as well. And so, just uh, to back up a little bit, the the idea being and the strategy being pushed by uh, Republicans, particularly on the House side. Now I'm talking about on the House side, including what uh, who appears to be the next Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, doing most of this speaking. We're encouraging Senate Republicans. Don't go along with this boondoggle $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. Instead, pass a continuing resolution to simply fund the government until the Republican House is seated next week so that they can, as, uh, as they should, deliberate spending to keep the government going for the rest of the year in accordance with regular orders, something we've talked about here on the program, uh, to negotiate 12 separate spending bills instead of one big giant catch-all omnibus bill. Bottom line is the Republicans in the Senate ignored that request. 18 peeled off, joined the Democrats, passed the omnibus bill. Of course, it goes to the presently Democrat-controlled House of Representatives, it passes. Seems like it was 
225 to 10, something like that, in favor of the bill. And uh, so it's passed. It's now headed to the president. We shared this yesterday. The thing is so gigantic that it will take staffers a week at least to enroll it. has to be enrolled on parchment in accordance with our procedures. And so they did see fit to pass a temporary, another temporary spending bill, a continuing resolution, just to keep the government open while, <laughs> while the drafters are busy putting pencil to paper. Maybe it's a stylus, I don't exactly know, to enroll. It's 4,155 pages, which is insanity unto itself. So unfor- And unfortunately, just to clarify, this $1.7 trillion takes care of the funding of the government, the discretionary portion of government, through the end of fiscal year 2023. So the next time the Republican-controlled House will have a shot at funding the government is for fiscal year 2024. Let's hope they start that process Oh, I don't know, in about uh, June, when they should, and have all that good to go, so that there's not this hurry up, rush up, got to get on an airplane and get home, sign here. That's what Schumer and even McConnell were clamoring. Reminds me of something my dad would always tell me. Lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. Correct. Wise words there. Embezzlement is defined as theft or misappropriation of funds placed in one's trust or belonging to one's employer on the ceasefire text line. Just asking, but why do we never hear this term when it comes to the U.S. Congress? Well, technically speaking, because there's there's no no proof of uh, misappropriation. That's a that's a a very tall, high bar to achieve because... Because they're the appropriators. Yeah. One person's misappropriation is another person's wise investment. There's just no consensus on that. The one thing that does just bug the crap out of me is no discussion through all of this uh, from the Senate side about producing a $1.2 trillion deficit, about the crippling inflation that's top of everybody's concern in this country. No no discussion about, you know, we really aren't taking in enough money to pay for all this. None of that ever comes up. I just can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. I, I invite you again, think about how you run your household. Those of you in business, think about how you run your business. You have to do it within the constraints of the money you got coming in. It's just simple as that. But that is not the way Washington operates. That never, ever enters into the discussion. And now well, we, in fairness, there's very little discussion to be had, especially on the House side. That's I mean, true. Nancy Pelosi's been Speaker of the House since 2019, and there have been exactly zero floor amendments allowed. That's exactly right. Not a one. <laughs> All of the bills under her leadership have been perfect. They don't need amendments. They just get rammed through. It's At least in her eyes, yeah. in the eyes of 
Democrats and Democrat voters. It's just disgusting. It's not just for post office or a building. A whole lot of that money they send overseas, they get X amount back onto the table to go into their pocket on the ceasefire tax line. There's just no proof of that. I'm not saying you're wrong about that, but that'd be money laundering. That's no proof of that. I mean, if somebody can actually prove that that money ended up in some individual's account after it went overseas, I think there is fairly strong evidence of that on Hunter Biden's laptop, honestly. I mean, that was influence peddling. 10% for the big guy. Yeah, and that's all, of course, ridiculously illegal. <laughs> Ridiculous in that you don't even have to think about it. I mean, that's so over the top in violation of law. If that was my kid and it cost him scholarships, this is David on the ceasefire tax line from the 228 referring to the story we shared about the school in Fairfax County, Virginia, where the principal and teachers essentially colluded to withhold rewards received, uh, awards received by uh, those students who took the national merit tests who were in line for financial possible financial scholarships to schools or admissions to schools, and they just conveniently waited till after the early admission or application date before they let them know, oh, by the way, you did pretty well here. In the name of equity, says if it was my kid and it cost some scholarships, I would be in jail just because I would take some equity out of his ASS. Well, I certainly hope these parents see fit to take legal action, because I think they have a strong case here. I don't think this is happening just in Fairfax County. I really do think this is taking hold across this country in these woke schools. Coming back on middays, half an hour left. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. Come on. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Studios, that would be tequila. We need to play the Ventures version of that. You familiar with them? The oh, Ventures? Yeah. yeah. We need to play that. Their version. They could play some guitars now, the Ventures. It was about five in the group or something like that. It was mostly guitarist and a drummer, as I recall. The uh, tequila, good tune by them. Hmm. On the ceasefire text line, Oh, by the way, says, everybody in my family can play an instrument except me. He wants to know if I can tickle the ivories. No, I cannot. Talking about buying a new keyboard. Oh, no, my bad. I see. <laughs> no, keyboard for the PC. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty fast on a PC keyboard. Done a little work in my career on that. But no, I cannot read music, nor can I play the piano. Cannot. Can play the drums all totally by ear. Did take some drum lessons, and there is actually drum music, 
but it's not quite the same as standard music. There actually is drum music. Yeah, there's there's similarities, but it's yeah, it's not the same. Not the same. It is on a staff, and it does follow the same rhythmic method. But yeah, it's that's right. You're not reading notes on the staff. I believe they're all on the same in the same rectangle. There, I don't even know what you call it on the music chart. Staff. Okay, that's the what lines it's on the page are yeah. called staff. Okay, I, the no, the notes are placed on the staff. Right, they're all on the same level in drum music. By the way. Which is how it keeps up with the rhythm with the rest of the music. Hmm. Got you. Well, I remember learning a little bit about that in Catholic grade school. The nuns had one of those really nifty little devices that had, um, like, uh, chalk for chalkboard. Like five little pieces of wire you'd insert chalk into. Oh, yeah. And you could make the staff, right? And then they'd put the notes up there. It's amazing how good. I always wondered, do they send all the nuns to, like, writing school? <laughs> all wrote the same, and it was all, gee, that, that cursive writing looks like the stuff that used to be hanging in the classroom. They can write just like that, freehand. I, really, did they send them to nun writing school or something? <laughs> They're pretty good at that. Uh, okay, Joe Rupsomroff says, yeah, okay, got you. Yeah, not no, not for my not for a piano, Joe. It's just a keyboard for my computer at home. Looking for a new one. I like the old style IBM PS2 keyboards. I got used to that patented tactile feel. And there are a couple of companies that still do make those and offer those. Oh yeah, I mean places. mechanical keyboards with the actual mechanical button instead of spring loaded a, yeah. deal. Yeah, those are. All the rage for computer gaming because oh, of the tactile feel. I didn't know that. Well, IBM actually did patent that, as I recall, back in the 70s on the Selectric typewriter. The, the pre-computers had typewriters, and uh, that keyboard had that springy tactile feel on it. And it's called the IBM Selectric typewriter, and they sold a gazillion of them. Well... They uh, they carried that same feel into the manufacture of the original IBM PC keyboard and continued that. I just got so accustomed to that. And it was the same on their mini computers and mainframes, too, on the terminals that connected those. I just got so used to that, I just don't feel comfortable with the more modern, I guess, mushy keyboards. Flatter keys. Yeah. They're kind of run together. Uh, the IBM Selectric style tactile feel keyboard is my preference, but they're on back order right now. Can't get them because there are supply constraints. Mike in Gulfport says, as long as the mayor doesn't want the state to help, let them drink bottled water and find an outhouse. This is a result of keeping on voting for incompetence and hoping lightning would strike some sense into the elected. There have to be people of color in Jackson who are smart enough to figure out how to fix the mess that it is our capital city. The situation has to be embarrassing for them. And while I agree to some extent, Mike, I, I guess I'm just suggesting that I don't think there is any appetite on the part of our legislators to really come too much to the financial aid of the city. I think there are some that would support such legislation, but I think in general they would be outnumbered by those who oppose it. 
I think there's concerns of that. I think they're hearing that from their constituents that live outside of the city that say, don't you go in there and vote for any financial support for the city of Jackson. I think you're kind of oh, yeah. the same thing. Yeah. So I think that's where we are. Darren in Jackson says, so the 17-year-old who works the drive through window should make the same as the engineer who designs a suborbital capsule that will take astronauts to Mars. Well, this is just a fundamental question, Darren, is it, the only fair arbiter of value is the market. It's the market. And so when Chuck Schumer goes out and attacks corporations and they're what he, he has deemed as greed because they want to produce a profit, and, they're, and they pay people who work for them what the market dictates. That's how it works. What I've always wondered is, where is Joe and his cadre of Democrat leftists who hate capitalism, why don't you hear them busting the chops of, how about Lionel Messi kicking a soccer ball? Made a billion dollars doing that. I'm perfectly cool with that. The market says, yeah, I'm willing to part with my money for him to play soccer. Great. Fantastic. Congratulations. But pretty sure he makes a good bit more than the average person watching? Than the people who make the games possible? Maintain the field, the concessionaires, go down the list. A whole bunch of people are involved behind the scenes to produce these, these giant sporting events. And, of course, artistic productions as well. But yet it's the stars, the talent, the people are paid to see. I'm sorry, they won't pay you, see, they won't pay you a premium to see you dole out popcorn and beer. Which there has been an argument about, speaking of stars in Hollywood. Okay. There's been an ongoing argument since before Christmas about a new term called Nepo Babies. Okay. Where it, it seems like it just dawned on some people that a lot of the stars you see coming out of Hollywood got their foot in the door because mom or pop or uncle or granddad already had a large chunk of influence in Hollywood. Of course. Like it's something new. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, by the way, you know, things ain't too rosy in Hollywood. The folks are losing their jobs in Hollywood that, by the way, voted for Joe Biden in droves because inflation is taking its toll on the entertainment industry. Imagine that. So just to put this in perspective and to be perfectly clear, Joe Biden's policies are causing them to lose their jobs. You think they get that? I sure hope so. Because it's the truth. It's just the absolute truth. And the Fed is celebrating. Yeah, people are getting... <laughs> they're they're uh, being sent to the lines of the unemployed. Yeah, that's what we want. You don't have any money to spend anymore except... With the way the stupid government benefits, the largesse of government works when you're unemployed, you can make just as much. So that's not, I'm not really convinced that the Fed's interest rate hiking action is going to have the impact that they desire. 
Gee, let's talk hospital. I'm having a procedure at Memorial Hospital in, uh, would that be in Gulfport, I'm assuming? It's a 228 number. Went to pre-op and I've had an out-of-pocket of, of 10000 bucks. Person in the next booth is having a procedure with no out-of-pocket because she was offered a federal assistance plan from the hospital. Why can't I apply a federal assistance plan? Not familiar with that. that. Because what you seem to be describing there, I'd like to know more about it, honestly. I'm not doubting you. Is uh, some sort of case-by-case special payment, special financial assistance for this procedure. Now, I'm not familiar with that. Let me know what you know about that. Certainly familiar with subsidies for uh, health insurance obtained in the exchanges, of course, Medicaid, etc. But I'm not exactly sure what this means, if, if some sort of financial aid specifically for a procedure. Well, according to Benefits.gov, there yep. are 107 Jesus. different federal assistance programs available in the Magnolia State alone. Now, that does include Medicaid and CHIPS and stuff yeah, like that, yeah. but there's 107. That's nuts that we even have that. Coming back with a final segment here on Midday. Stay with us. This show was previously recorded. This show was previously recorded. You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios, final segment on Middays. We're here tomorrow and Thursday, and then the best of on Friday, back in the studio next Monday, and kicking off a brand-new legislative session a week from today, next Tuesday. Looking forward to that. On the ceasefire text line from Terry in Bogachita, what's your opinion of Roger Wicker? Is for me and many in my area... He will never get my vote again. The omnibus bill was terrible. If he wants to vote with the Dems, he should run as one. Well, you know, I, as far as my opinion is concerned, I try to focus on, on policy. And I hope you've seen that in listening to the show. Uh, I, I disagree with this vote. I don't think this was uh, a good vote, a vote well cast for the senator. I disagreed with his support of the the CHIPS Act, and his support for the infrastructure bill. He voted against the most fraudulently named legislation in our history, the Inflation Reduction Act. He voted against the American Rescue Plan. So just wanted to clarify the record. So the three bills that he did support, one of a handful of Republicans, I believe 19 if I'm not mistaken, on the infrastructure bill, 17 on the CHIPS Act, and 18 on the omnibus bill. I disagree with those votes. Don't think those were uh, honestly consistent with the views of constituents here in the state of Mississippi and most Republicans uh, in the country. So I'll just leave it at that. I think those were um, not uh, really... 
good, positive votes uh, to move the country forward. I remain concerned about reckless spending. I think this just continues it. Uh, Americans have made it very clear that inflation and the cost of everything going up is their paramount concern. Someone asked earlier where I saw, I'm looking for it here, Rhino, where do you think the stock market is going? And, of course, anything I say here is completely speculative and a big old guess. But my personal opinion is that I believe we're in for some rough times in the next six months. I think we're going to see lots of earnings reports come out here in the next few weeks showing uh, a decline, and but more importantly, negative guidance, and that will influence investors. We're going to see more interest rate hikes, hopefully at a slower pace and a slower rate. I think all of that is going to weigh negatively on the markets, but I do believe that we're going to see inflation moderate, tick down a bit. I think investors are going to like that, and so I'm looking for a decent rebound and a bit of a bull bounce and a sustained bull market to kick in in the fourth quarter of 23. That's just my opinion, uh, based on consuming all sorts of information and other reports don't want to get into that. Uh, you should consult a professional advisor if it's something that uh, you're looking into. We recommend, of course, our friends at Element Wealth. They uh, handle uh, some of my investments and very pleased with the results that we have received there, I've received there, and, and pretty much don't bother. You know, I've, I've provided uh, goals and objectives early on, and uh, when I open an account with them, and then they take it from there. And of course, you guys have heard Jeremy Nelson come on the program. He's, he, uh, I think, does excellent work along those lines. So that, that's where I see it going. But it's the market. There are buyers, there are sellers. That's what makes it work. And anything is possible. And, of course, there are geopolitical events that could affect as well. Who knows what's going to happen with Russia and Ukraine. Anything could, could uh, evolve, surface on any day that could send markets in one direction or another. Apple, I happen to have been accumulating Apple for a long time. And it is down today, and it is being plagued with a couple of things. One is still have concerns about supply chain problems and manufacture of iPhones and shortages there. It's being reported. But something we touched on at the top of the program, which is that they're being facing a class action lawsuit alleging racial bias in the Apple Watch's blood uh, oximeter. Oximeter? Is that how you say it, Rhino? Oximeter. Oximeter. I said it right the first time. Okay, that's the way it's spelled. Uh, now, somebody earlier on the program gave us kind of a technical explanation that, of that and said this is horse hockey. I don't know who the person is that texted us that, but based on their explanation, certainly looked legitimate to me that it came from somebody that is more familiar with this than I am. But the lawsuit alleges that during the pandemic, researchers, quote, confirmed the clinical significance of racial bias of pulse, pulse oximetry using patients' records as compared to the watch and its measurement of it. So it didn't consider skin tone is what they're saying.
Unfreaking believable. Just is. So that's weighing on the stock today as well as supply chain challenges. We are out of time here today, but we're back in the Element Well studios tomorrow. Until then, thanks for joining us. Stay safe and God bless everyone. This show was previously recorded. A Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.